Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, we celebrate the feast of St. Luke the Evangelist. We call Luke an evangelist because he wrote one of the four New Testament Gospels. The word evangelist means a person who proclaims the good news. Two of the evangelists were also part of Jesus's band known as the 12 apostles. Those were Matthew and John. The other two, Mark and Luke, were also apostles, but not of the 12 of the 70, which we just heard St. Luke tell us himself in his gospel account today. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but first, What else do we know about St. Luke? Well, we know that St. Luke was a native of Antioch, where our our, um, patriarchate is. He was a physician, and in addition to writing his gospel, he wrote the the book of Acts and was a close friend of Paul of Tarsus, as you heard in today's epistle reading. Indeed, he's named in at least two of Paul, I think just two of Paul's epistles, Philemon, where he mentions Epaphras, Mark, uh, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke as his fellow workers, Paul's fellow workers, and in 2 Timothy, where we read today that Damas has now deserted him and that Crescens and Titus have gone elsewhere, and Luke is the last one with him. Luke is also considered the founder of Christian iconography. He is reported to have painted at least three icons of the Most Holy Theotokos, as well as icons of St. Peter and Paul. And some of his icons reportedly survive today. In his old age, he visited Libya and Upper Egypt. From Egypt, he returned to Greece, where he continued to preach and convert many with great zeal, despite his advancing age. And he may have been the one who met the resurrected Lord on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas. But now let's head back to the first road that Luke traveled with Jesus, where the Lord traveled along with Luke, even though he may not have recognized him fully at that time. The journey described when Jesus sent out his 70, or as some translations say, 72 additional apostles. In what must be one of the most quoted verses of the Bible, it says that Jesus sent them out because the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. However, I find this curious as we think about how Jesus sent out his laborers. First, he sends them out two by two. So doesn't that mean that Jesus just effectively cut his labor force in half? Didn't he just say there weren't enough laborers for the harvest? And yet we know the Lord recognizes that he's sending them forth into a tough world where he says they're like lambs among wolves. I like how he says lambs and not sheep. I think he's conveying a certain innocence in the men who think they're going to go out there and save the world, whipped up into a volunteer army for the Lord. They're ready and eager. They're hungry. But soon they're going to face the realities of the world. There's going to be hunger, tiredness, likely robbers who might beat them all the more because they don't have anything to give. 
because the Lord said, don't take any extra stuff, not even an extra pair of shoes. We all know what having a like-minded companion, though, for a journey like that can do. It can help you on that tough road. It can help you stay, keep going when you're fearful, sad, or tired. The Lord knew that having a companion wasn't a luxury, but a requirement for the journey that makes it easier to bear the trials and tribulations of this world. The same is true of our spiritual journey. We're not supposed to go it alone, and if we do, we're more likely to get snapped up by the wolves around us. So I guess even if you can only get to 35 places instead of 70, it's worth pairing up. Then we hear the next remarkable thing. Where does he send them? Into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So Jesus only sent a pair of apostles to a place that he would later travel. Again, why? For the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Shouldn't they go to places that the Lord will not go? After all, we know in retrospect that Jesus has only got a few more years of his ministry. Shouldn't these apostles head out to some other places proclaiming the good news of salvation that has come? Maybe they could bring some folks in from other towns that Jesus will never encounter otherwise. But no, they are ordered to only go to the places the Lord would later go. Finally, again recall that they were to go without anything but what was on their back, with nothing to weigh them down, and trust in their being sons of peace to help them in each place they visit. And they're to go with great haste, not bothering to even salute anyone by the way. These men echo John the Baptist, the forerunner, preparing the way of the Lord with haste. So what are we to do? Well, let's recall one of our recurring themes over the last month. That theme is, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We learn from Subdeacon Stephen that the Lord isn't saying don't worry, but that the Lord is saying that we should be worrying about what's contained in the here and now. Then we heard in discussing the widow of Nain how what we must worry about in this present moment is the dead around us, the spiritual dead as well as the physically sick. And indeed, that very message is recapitulated today. For what is the only thing that Jesus tells them to do in the towns that, they're, that receive him? Receive them, heal, heal the sick, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. And finally, last week, in recalling the motherhood of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we hear again those words that should come to us in the words of the Beatles when we find ourselves in times of trouble. Let it be. Let it be unto me according to thy word. The Virgin Mary says, and the salvation of the world is brought about in that intensely private and personal moment with the angel Gabriel. And today, as we celebrate the feast of St. Luke, we hear the message again. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. For that is incorporated in the haste with which the apostles are sent, that they need not worry whether they have food or clothing. These 70 will, as they walk the road to the town where they are sent, see firsthand the birds of the air, that they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet their heavenly Father will feed them. And, remember that, and, and they will remember that they are of more value than them. 
They will see the lilies of the field, how they grow, that they neither toil nor spin, and recognize that if God so clothes the grass of the field, that they will be richly clothed also. The 70, including St. Luke, embody Jesus' message. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But first, seek the kingdom of God and its righteousness, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But I see something additional in the message today that I think is critical to our walk with Christ in this world. I see not only a message about worrying more about this present time than we should, because again, we only need to, about time in general, because we only need to worry about the present moment. But today I also see a message about not worrying about more space than we need to worry about. The 70 tells us that we just need to take care of what is around us and that only. It's easy to become anxious as we look around the world, especially this year, where we see so much suffering. This is well conveyed by a story that the utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer uses to teach his students about philosophy, his philosophy. He asks them to imagine what their route to the university is and tells them, you know, imagine that it takes you by a shallow pond and that one morning you notice a child has fallen in and appears to be drowning. To wade in and pull the child out would be easy, of course, but you're going to get your clothes wet and muddy, and by the time you go home and change, you'll have missed your class. Do you have any obligation to save the child? Unanimously, I, I hope you expect, they all reply yes, and they note that the importance of saving a child so far outweighs the cost of getting one's clothes muddy and missing a class that they refuse to consider it any kind of excuse for not saving that child. So then he asks them, does it make a difference that there are other people walking past the pond who would equally be able to rescue the child but are not doing so? Of course not, the students reply. The fact that others are not doing what they ought to do is no reason I should not do what I ought to do. And then once all of his students are clear about the obligation to rescue the drowning child in front of them, he asks, would it make a difference if the child were far away, in another country perhaps, but similarly in danger of death, and equally within your means to save, at no great cost and absolutely no danger to yourself? And virtually all agree that distance and nationality make no moral difference to the situation. But then I point out that we're all in that situation, I being Peter Singer, of passing that shallow pond. We can, save a we can all save lives of people, both children and adults who would otherwise die, and we can do so at very small cost to us. The cost of a new CD or a shirt or a night out at a restaurant, a concert, could mean the difference between life and death to more than one person somewhere in the world. And overseas AIDS agencies can overcome the problem of acting at a distance. Unsurprisingly, the students at this point start to raise various practical difficulties. Well, can we be sure that our donation will really get to the people who need it? 
Don't most aid agencies get swallowed up in administrative costs or waste or downright corruption? Isn't the real problem the growing world population? And isn't there, is there any point in saving lives until that problem has been solved? And Peter Singer says those questions can all be answered. And also points out that even if a substantial proportion of the donations were wasted, the cost to us of making the donation is so small compared to the benefits that it provides when it or some of it does not get through to those who need our help that we would still be saving lives at a small cost to ourselves, even if aid organizations were much less efficient than they actually are. Peter Singer says that he's always struck by how few students challenge the underlying ethics of this idea that we ought to save the lives of strangers when we can do so at relatively little cost to ourselves. Well, he might be struck by that, by some seeming logical inconsistency in his students, but I'm not. Why not? Well, first, I'm, not, I'm frankly not sure his logic is as sound as it may appear, because in that leap from local to global is an assumption that we have the same obligations universally as those right next to us. I think if you were thinking about this story, you started to feel the crushing burden of what he's suggesting. It leaves open all sorts of other questions. Why that hungry child halfway around the world rather than the one next door who relies on the school lunch program for the only balanced meal they can get each day but's out of school due to the pandemic? I also don't think that's the Christian philosophy. Because more important to us as Christians is that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, had shown us a different way. He shows us that not only is the worry sufficient for the day, but that the worry is sufficient for the here. We need to look no further than where we are, for worry is, the worry here is sufficient for us to tackle. We are Jesus' hands and feet, not his jetpack. We are his image, not his telepresence. The good news is that Jesus tells us to worry only about the here, not some far-flung land, here. After all, what did Jesus do? He was God. He could have simultaneously appeared all over the face of the earth or made multiple appearances or who can even imagine what he could have done. But what did he actually do? He came as a man in the fullness of time as one man to a single small place. You could drive from one end of Jesus's ministry to the other in an hour if there was a highway between its farthest reaches. Jesus didn't save the world by traveling everywhere for countless years or by some miraculous method. He decided not to come to an age where he could have jetted all over the world on a world tour, but rather one that required him to walk. Not only does Jesus tell us that the worry is sufficient for the here, he also, as he always does, demonstrates it by his actions. The problem is that we become so either so self-centered that we focus so internally on the here inside of us for our own sakes, or we go so far that we think we're, we're responsible for saving the world. Neither is true. Neither is the Christian philosophy. And let's take each of those in turn. We do need to work on the here inside ourselves. 
but we can't be doing it only for our sakes. All too many Christians have a perspective that somehow Christianity is about how me individually is saved to avoid the fires of hell. Unfortunately, that message itself is from the pit of hell and smells of smoke. We need to do the hard work of tilling our souls, not to save ourselves, but those around us. St. Seraphim of Seraph did not say, acquire the spirit of peace and you will be saved, but instead acquire the, the spirit of peace and a thousand souls around you will be saved. With respect to a feeling we must save the world, we need to firmly remind ourselves that's not the way Jesus saved the world. Jesus saved the world by loving, healing, and empowering those right next to him. Through that local action, he had a global effect. He conquered nation after nation, not by violence, but by love. Does that mean that I'm discouraging you from helping causes? For example, our archdiocese reaches an appeal to help those in Lebanon? Of course not. However, if you think that sending a few bucks from the comfort of your couch to some faraway land is satisfying Jesus' expectation that you'll do good works, then you have missed his message, my brothers and sisters. There's a reason that we hear in every Mass and in every Gospel, that, that we hear in every Mass and in the Gospel appointed for today, we will hear, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The word is perfect. Did you expect otherwise? Our neighbor isn't someone halfway across the world. We know that isn't what that word means. It means the person next to us, and Jesus meant it that way. If we're taking care of the needs of those around us, our family, our fellow parishioners, those in our neighborhoods, our colleagues at work, etc., then we're doing what Jesus commanded us to do. And in time, those actions will save the world. So there's worry sufficient for the here. Whether worry is work in our hardened hearts, our darkened minds, our disturbed souls, that will bring us out of our self-centered lives to be Jesus to the immediate world around us, or whether we need to make sure our charity is first sufficient to the needs of our neighbors rather than people in far-flung lands. That our charity is physical, a real presence and meeting with and walking with the people who are hurting around us. And look around. Don't you see your neighbors hurting? To me, that seems like there's already too much to do. But Jesus says to focus on what you're capable of and no more. Bite off only what you can chew and thousands around you will be saved. Maybe not immediately, but as that love and generosity and concern and hope spread, I not only have a hope, but a certainty that together we will transform this world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.